you feel you almost have a responsibility to do better and do better, not just for the public, but for the people that we're working with daily in the communities that we live in. But I think when you have that sort of passion because of that in the ground, it provides you with that endless amount of energy and we don't sleep very much because we're working all the time. <laughs> but it doesn't feel like work because it's something that you enjoy doing. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Waterloo Grit, episode 18. My name's Chris. I'm new face here for Waterloo Grit broadcast, stepping in for Jay Christian this week to introduce some of our amazing founders that are in some of our programs. Uh, so I work directly in the programs team. I'm one of the managers of uh, programs and client experience, specifically working in our amazing Venture Studio program, of which we've moved into phase two. Uh, so Patrick is one of the CEOs and founders of uh, one of our companies going through phase two of the program currently. So pass it over to you, Patrick. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hello, everyone. Absolute pleasure to be here today with you, Chris. My name is Patrick Holleran, co-founder and CEO of 911 Info. So can you tell me a little bit more about uh, your, your company and what you guys are exactly creating or building? Okay, beautiful. So we created records management software for emergency services. So essentially a records management software collects the who, what, when, where, how of what happens behind the scenes when somebody calls 911, because there's an administrative process that is mandatory and legal for collecting the information of the record of the emergency. So these systems exist in every fire department, every emergency services across the world. Uh, we have specifically built one tailored to the fire service because that is my background and my partner. And what we've basically done from an operational perspective is we've made the process easier. Um, in our user experience, these systems are very antiquated. They don't really meet the user needs and demands. So we built a system that really works and it optimizes the performance so that the first responders can spend their time out in the communities, helping people, doing the jobs that they're being paid to do instead of being bogged down with administrative processes. And then on a higher strategic level, what we do is we have uh, API integrations with other partnering companies that we work with that help make the whole manual system work. And we collect a mass amount of data from emergency response. It's being done right now. But what we've done is we optimize the performance of that data through um, some data visualizations, predictive analytics, AI, machine learning algorithms that we built. And we build out some beautiful data visualizations so that the decision makers at the highest levels can just look at a beautiful dashboard and they automatically know what's going on, time, performance, what calls they're going to, essentially uh, make it so that the overall picture of what's going on in service is just perfectly optimized. It's this solution that, that you're building. That's obvious a lot of kind of the internal processes. Where is it kind of inspired from? What caused you to build this and what's the story behind it? So I've been really fortunate. I've been in the fire service for 22 years and hold senior leadership position. Uh, my partner comes from tech with over 20 years experience opening, working for a great company like OpenText and BlackBerry, I hired onto the fire department. And um, I should also add, in addition to being uh, in the fire service, I went back to school and uh, got an MBA focusing specifically on analytics. Uh, and as I said at the beginning of this podcast, fire service relies on these software solutions to provide service and, and, and delivery. So as I was going through school, I'm learning about ERPs and analytics, and I'm seeing the systems that we rely on in 
to do our job. And it, it was incredibly antiquated technology, no customer support. To answer your question bluntly, it was really out of frustration with uh, the overall lack of functioning systems that we as emergency responders rely on to provide that high level of service to the community. Just that, why aren't we doing better? Like we have to be doing better. And very typical within our space is there are American built solutions that have forced upon their service because of the lack of options. And I just thought that this isn't right. So my buddy, my, my partner and I combined our expertise. We built a solution that actually works and it's going really well. Thanks to the help of the AC, of course. <laughs> That's amazing. And you, you think of all the emergency services and how they're the touch point they have with each community and, and how active they are. It, and it's a shock to hear that they don't have these technological advances behind the scenes. They're processing or make community safer or make their, their roles, which are inherently uh, dangerous, uh, a little bit more safe and, and to be able to do that. So what value do you bring directly to both the firefighters uh, or other medical services or emergency services? as well as the community. What's kind of your value to, to both parties? Well, what we like to say is we were revolutionizing and modernizing the emergency services using modern technology. Because as I said before, a lot of the software systems that we're relying on are outdated. So I, we enable departments to operate more efficiently uh, and through efficiency comes effectiveness and then the optimization of essentially our tax dollars. Because if you can have a department that's running properly, you're saving time, you're saving money, which also goes on to save lives for both the public and for the first responders themselves. Uh, we've had some incredible recent developments, specifically built what's called the occupancy module. So in addition to the analytics and the records management piece, we have it, it built in with our system, but it's almost a separate revenue based on some of the guidance and mentorship that we've had from the AC where we took, we, we, we take the very important information about buildings. They're all across the city. Take, for example, Kitchener, Waterloo, Grand River Hospital will have what's called a pre-plan we'll survey. Again, that language innate to our emergency service industry. Essentially, it's a pen and paper copy of all of the exits where the vulnerable people are, if there's any hazardous material stored. We, digitized that experience and built it into our system. And then we built triggers within the system. So should there be updates, for example, like the responsible party contact information changes, or there's hazardous materials stored on site, that information gets inputted into our system and it automatically gets pulled and then pushes the information to the first responders on scene to enhance both public safety and first responder safety. It's a really next level development that we're pretty excited about and pretty proud about because we know it's going to positively impact public safety and first responder safety. It's incredible to, to kind of notice some of the changes and differences and, and some of the disruption. What currently are they utilizing today? What's the status quo within some emergency services? So typical practice focusing specifically on the occupancy module is a lot of pen and paper processes and manuals. So in the event, for example, Using my, again, my example with uh, Grand River, in the event that something changes, such as something really important, like they're now storing some sort of hazardous materials, which should catch fire, have drastic, drastically negative impacts to the community. Um, somebody has to go in and manually put that in. And then they have to manually send it to another process in the 911 system called a CAD, 
who then has to update it in their system and then send it that information to the first responders on scene. And, I mean, government is always being asked to do more with less. And with this new process or technology that we have, we're enabling that to be automated so that they can do more with less so that your administ the administrative people and the first responders, again, going back to the core elements of the RMS process that we built, spending administrative time, we're automating that process. And again, we're modernizing the services. Was that manual piece, just thinking of it within your role within the, the fire department, was that something you were actively doing? Because I find, you know, when you speak to a lot of founders that have started their, their startup journey very early, they're normally trying to solve one of their own problems and then trying to validate it with obviously their inner circle and then slowly with their larger market. Was this pain that you were experiencing firsthand or one of your close colleagues or Ahmed? Like, what was the story there? So, absolutely. hundred percent. And that experience echoes our exact experiences in a lot of our processes for how our uh, company even began. And it, it's without a bad frustration that we came up with the solution. Sort of how uh, our brains kind of work, I find, is that uh, there's a problem that's go find a solution. And uh, yeah, I, I, I can speak to personal experiences, speaking directly to the occupancy module where I'm showing up on scene and uh, you know, I'm in command of an incident and the responsible party is handing me a piece of paper and saying, here's the name of the chemicals that are in there, I think. Uh, and I, I don't feel like that is high level of service and uh, it creates um, a lot of potential chaos, but with chaos comes opportunity to make corrections and improvements. And I feel like we really have done that. We're pretty proud to say that we know what we built is going to really improve that uh, facet of what we do. And not just for fire, that it works for police and EMS as well too, that specific application. Yeah, what I was going to say is just the, it's been inspirational to watch a little bit more of the impact-driven nature of your business, right? Like actually living the problem, kind of moving forward with it. Uh, I'm very close to EMS myself. My fiance is a, a paramedic, so I hear plenty of stories about the the paperwork and uh, the records management that, that kind of she has to go through on a daily basis. To good nature, obviously, there's a, a great reason behind it. But just finding ways to build efficiency into that process, make it easier so that there's more time to relieve some of the healthcare and then emergency services workloads, building capacity, and then make the process a lot simpler as it should be, right? With technology. You said it best, building capacity. There's only so much time in the day. Do you want your people supplementing and supporting these systems that don't work manually putting information? Or do we want to use technology because it's 2023 and automate that process so that time can be spent doing out in the community, helping people or helping somebody on a scene, et cetera. There are valid, so I just add, there are very valid reasons, important reasons for the collection of the information. The records process is incredibly important from everything from legal aspects of what we do in the event that it, an incident goes to court or even just total quality assurance in terms of uh, evaluating the performance of you know, how long is it taking uh, an EMS vehicle, a fire vehicle, or a police vehicle to arrive on scene and then analyzing that data. Yeah, and, and enabling the organization to use it, right? And that's incredible. Sticking on that impact line of thought then, what's kind of your vision for the company? Like, where do you see you end up in, in five to 10 years or where would you like to take it? Well, again, incredibly fortunate to be part of the AAC program. We've had just 
absolute top tier guidance and mentorship. And I mentioned that because my two, five, five, 10 year plan would be drastically different if we didn't have access to such great people because our growth and our scalability has really accelerated directly as a result of the program. So we have a target of obviously Ontario because that's our home base. And then uh, we have discussions with professionals to then branch out to Canada. And then through the AC program, got some excellent guidance and direction on how we can start impacting the North American and international markets with our technology because the problem we've identified isn't unique to just Ontario and Canada. A lot of the solutions, as I said at the beginning of this conversation that have been designed for us, are built by non-users. My company's story is, I feel very unique. It's not very often that you have somebody with 20 plus years of development and coding experience that can actually design and build a product. And then somebody with 20 plus years in a senior leadership position with an MBA and the focus on analytics, it's just, it's not as common. And we're really looking to capitalize on that. And again, using the AC mentor resources that we have, we feel like we have a pretty good game plan in place. No, and, and thank you for, for the kind words there. It's, it's, it's amazing having companies like, like yours participate and actually make progress. And just look back, you've been with us 10 months, which is relatively short when you look at a lifetime, but in startup terms, it's an eternity, right? And, and looking back on when you first joined and you didn't really have a fully functioning website yet, you kind of had an early idea of what you wanted to do with the company, but still a long pathway ahead. It's been great watching you kind of work alongside us and really grow and, and make an impact within the community. Thanks. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, every startup never has a limit on kind of the challenges and obstacles on, on growing a business. Can you mention any few on selling into government has its own perks and, and strategy with that, but can you just talk about some of the challenges of, of scaling a startup here, both in Canada, as well as in the market you're in? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, Obstacles create opportunities and really fortunate to have access to such great resources to really, when we hit a wall, talk, calling up one of the mentors and saying, Hey, look, this is going on. What's your suggestion? And the odds are in this great community that we live in with such an amazing tech ecosystem in place, there's somebody that's also experienced it and they have some steps that they can guide us along the process. So that instead of this problem taking us, you know, two or three months to sort of break through that wall. It's literally weeks, which really speaks to the value that these groups provide truly is an amazing experience. So to speak to some direct sort of walls that we hit sometimes, selling into government is great. The sales acquisition processes can sometimes be long. We just know we we're fortunate enough to participate with the AC at the Fed Dev roundtable conversation at the University of Waterloo and uh, one of the topics discussed was the whole risk inversion piece in Canada surrounding tech. We are by no means immune to that. I think though it just, it does, it creates an opportunity to look at unique processes for how to attack those RFP processes that we specifically target in government so that we can get around that risk inversion. And uh, we've been really fortunate to be connected through to some amazing government groups like FedDev and are, are working behind the scenes, break through some of those obstacles and make it easier for people like myself. And again, um, I gotta say it's through meetings, like the roundtable discussion that we had yesterday, that we get direct access to those groups so that they're hearing it directly from us, so that they can positively 
impact change and do the jobs that they're trying to do because they're trying to make it easier for founders like myself to break through and keep that economic development here in Canada. But there, there are obstacles, like I said, the risk inversion piece, long sale cycles. I think it's on us sometimes as founders to try to figure out solutions for that, but it also really helps when the big wigs that government are also aware of it too. Yeah, let's let's chat about that kind of risk aversion piece and kind of the solutions aspect of it, because I think your team has employed some pretty interesting ways. I mean, obviously, you're in an industry where there are lives at stake, there's process at stake, where minutes sometimes impacts whether or not somebody is going to the outcome of the certain situation. So I'd love to know how you're working to, to de-risk both your potentially your sales process, your customer success process. What does that kind of look like to make sure that both people are seeing value, but feel comfortable and be able to bring in a new system that replaces maybe a legacy system or something that's a little bit older? Yeah. So in our space, we, have, we do have the luxury of sometimes sitting on the other side of the RFP table. So being able to have a buyer's mindset as well as a vendor mindset, I feel has been really helpful in our processes to be successful and like sitting back and reflecting on okay, what is the buyer essentially going to be worried about here? And what can what steps can we take to sort of minimize that risk? Specifically with ourselves, partnerships with established companies are something that we've had a great amount of success with. And we're continuing to work on those and, and develop and foster them. Working with people who have already been there, done that, is something that really resonates with the Canadian risk aversion piece. So that instead of going to an American company, they can reflect on the company that we're already partnered with that was successful so that we don't have to license our product to an American company to sell it back to us here in Canada, which is somewhat of a paradox. And that paradox definitely exists. And it's something that operates in the back of our heads oftentimes, but we're continuously taking steps to do that. And I would say partnerships is really biggest thing we can do. And we're really lucky in Kitchener Waterloo here specifically to have such great companies. Biovision, for example, um, you know, we've been very fortunate to get some mentorship and guidance from them specifically and similar growth path. Obviously they were way earlier and incredibly successful. So yeah, drawing from those experiences really helps. No, it's awesome. It's, it's so nice to have groups in the community such as that that have been there, done that a long, not like a long time ago, but a relatively long time ago to, to bring that expertise and share it forward. Shout out to Myovision, Curtis and, and Tony being able to provide some guidance on that front from like a founder and can't even imagine how busy they are on a, a daily basis. Yeah, I, I was just going to add to that. Yeah, go for it, it. It's amazing through this program because we've been lucky to have direct conversations with Tony himself and you know, somebody that's just incredibly successful and Sometimes we've gotten emails from him on like a Saturday night at six o'clock and it's something that's incredibly helpful. And you're just like, wow, like that is really paying it forward. And like reflecting on us specifically, like success for us looks like being able to do that for somebody, you know, in five or 10 years in, in return. Like it's a, it, going back to some of the points we made earlier, it's an incredible ecosystem here. Get your one Yeah. And, and, and kind of extending on that because you mentioned emails on Saturday nights and everything. So. You're full-time firefighter, obviously, and, and running a technology startup on the same time. What does that kind of look like in your world? What's kind of your day-to-day? -day? What's like your week, weekly <laughs> process on being able to manage both at the same time? 
our company is something that it's not just a company for us. It's a passion. It almost feels like a fourth child. Mama and I joke about sometimes you're so invested in it, but we are because of the, like going back to what we talked about at the start, like those user experiences and pain points and the chaos that's being created in our industry for systems that we rely on to do the jobs that we do in the community. And I mean, as users with the, the backgrounds, we feel you almost have a responsibility to do better and do better, not just for the public, but for the people that we're working with daily in the communities these that we live in. So I think when you have that sort of passion because of that in the background, it provides you with that endless amount of energy and we don't sleep very much because we're working all the time. <laughs> but it doesn't feel like work because it's something that you enjoy doing. There's always that mantra of entrepreneurship where I'd rather work 80 hours for myself than 40 hours for somebody else. But I think that's because you really love what it is that you're doing and what you're creating and that, that value you can provide. Yeah, speaking of partnerships, you guys need a partnership with uh, a coffee bean roastery or something <laughs> to be able to, to keep you up all the time. I feel like I have one with Nick Bresson. <laughs> <laughs> so when we look at, I'm sure some of our listeners are in a similar role, you know, working like a corporate job or maybe somewhere within the public or emergency services, if it's even that relevant. Do you have any kind of advice for people in that role that, that may have some sort of inkling that they want to start their own business, but don't really know how to jump off or formulate an idea or take the step into living the founder entrepreneurship life? Like what kind of advice do you have on that? But so I've been really fortunate, especially as of late to be in a situation where I can lead that back forward and speak to some individuals specifically in our community who were looking to exactly do that. Some of them development, et cetera, and I'll have to know specifics of everything that they're doing to say that I feel the best thing that somebody can be doing when they're thinking about that is, is to approach the tech incubation hubs. Like where are you going to get better guidance and mentorship than in a program like Venture Studio Accelerator? Like I'm not, a, I don't have to be an expert in everything because there's a whole collection of people that are supporting startups that somebody has a skill within that group that is an expert that can then like going back to what we talked about before, break through that wall in a one or two week period instead of a three or five month period. And I really think it's that three to five month rag that really erodes the passion that entrepreneurs have in the space to move forward. So this really enables you to keep your energy directed and focused towards the actual solution or software that you're building instead of getting bogged down in the administrative paperwork or speaking to an accountant, et cetera. Provides more well-roundedness and my best advice would be for people to reach out to programs like the AC and say, where do I sign up? How do I sign up? Yeah, it's important to have that release stage support and just like the sense where you're not doing it alone, right? Like you don't do. No. When you were very fortunate early on in your, your growth to have, you know, another person to really lean on, you know, with Ahmed and being able to grow the company. Do you have any advice for people kind of searching for, for that tech side or maybe the business side? to be able to find like a co-founder to be able to scale the company because you leverage each other both very, very well. I think the universities provide excellent sounding board and opportunities and specific to Kitchener-Waterloo. We are incredibly lucky to have Laurier in Waterloo and Conestoga right in our backyards. And they have excellent programs from the gig lab to the various co-op programs at the university that provide an endless amount of opportunity and resource. If you cannot find somebody at the University of Waterloo who's interested in helping you with your app slash tech startup, you are not looking hard. 
because there are an endless amount of really smart people that are looking to innovate, to create change. And they're not motivated by, I feel like the dollars, they're motivated by value that the products can provide back and the, what it is that they're actually doing, especially with the new course. Uh, we find that through our sort of like talent acquisition process, it's the value that you're providing back to people that really motivate them versus the actual financial aspect of things. No, it's amazing. And, and to any listeners that, that want a connection to CUW or, or Conestoga College Gig Lab, they're building something special, the commercial, commercialization an entrepreneurship collective um, at Conestoga, just feel free to reach out to us and we can make the, the connect there. Because they're two amazing teams um, that supported so many of our founders and especially Patrick here. Patrick's gone through projects with them. So uh, always feel free to reach out to either of those groups. So I have to bring it up because I find it to be a super entertaining uh, story between you and Ahmed. But how did you both originally meet and come into this business as one? So Ahmed and I met about 20 years ago and we didn't think our story was that unique, but we've met with a couple other founders and it seems to really resonate with people. So we met about 15, 20 years ago, uh, but we met as competitors against each other. We didn't really know each other and uh, we both do uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and we competed against each other as adversaries. And then through those experiences, we found out through conversation that he was in Guelph and I was in Waterloo and we thought collaboratively we could do a lot better together versus individually. And yeah, we, we got together and became main training partners. And from there, both competed and won at Penn and Game, few of the world gold medals. And yeah, we traveled all over competing with each other as training partners, really forged a good friendship. And I usually know what he's thinking before he does and vice versa, because we just spend so much time together with each other in that capacity. And it uh, it really helps with uh, the business end of things as well, too. Do you carry through kind of that competitive nature still within the business? Or a hundred percent. I would describe ourselves as athletes. Uh, I'm like best athletes. We're really fortunate to represent Canada on that world stage multiple times. And I even draw from those experiences all that time, even in the interviews and unique experiences that you get and you're up in front of a group of people and CEOs and you're presenting. Where else can you get that? But on some of the world stages that we were really fortunate enough to compete on because it's really replicatable, the whole sport versus world's work aspect that uh, we draw from those experiences all the time. And then uh, we also kind of look at our American companies that are in the same space as uh, competitors and we want to compete and look to those sort of pit holes in their systems to see where we can take advantage of it, similar to what you would do if you were in an athletic competition. When discussing some of the, you know, the market expansion, the stuff competing obviously with U.S. competitors, is there any difference or like fundamental differences between the Canadian and the U.S. markets when it comes to emergency services? Like where do you foresee some opportunity or challenges I think there's an- in front of you? I'd say that, again, the biggest challenge that we have is we have a better product. We know we do, but where they beat us is really in the government subsidies and funding. Our biggest competitor, for example, would not want to set up a trade booth vendor side, whereas we would love to do that because we know we have a superior product full user built solutions in it, but they have just such a bigger bank role behind them with the American subsidies that they, as I said before, are more likely to try to 
license our software and rebrand it as their own and then sell it to Canadian companies, which goes to what we talked about earlier about some of the problems within the space. So yeah, that's probably is there, I know it's probably an impossible question and there's likely not an answer to it. Do you have any thoughts or a solution for that? Or like what we could be doing better as an ecosystem to, to put Canadian companies or technology startups on the world stage? I think it's marketing and, and sales and, and blending the, the private and uh, public sector relationships. For example, like oops, I said, like the AC educating government on sure your startup could be spending a hundred hours filling out this application or they could be spending a hundred hours generating revenue well when you rather than generating the revenue the other thing it seems almost like tertiary industries have popped up that get their money from just writing the grant for the entrepreneurs who are busy being entrepreneurial and then the company getting the grant has to give percentage of the money to a company that just writes grants which seems a bit not the most responsible use of money that's supposed to be just being used to develop economical development. I think any area in that regard that can help would be great. Again, I think that the, the marketing of what the AC does on a grander scale so that somebody in Saskatchewan is aware of it as somebody who lives in Waterloo, like obviously have an incredible advantage in that, in that AC is about five, 10 minute bike ride from my house. So where else am I going to get that sort of connection? But if I lived in BC, would I still have that? I don't think so, which I think government could be doing some work there in partnership with, with AC and AC to uh, popularize the programs and make them more widespread. Because I think it is that connection between you as the AC is the middle person between the entrepreneur and government that can really accelerate the groups. No, absolutely. Just working together on, on all fronts and making sure that things are connecting and integrating where necessary. But you mentioned actually a very interesting point about connecting to potentially groups in, in Saskatchewan and massively in the news and in the press as of late and the prairies and then Quebec as well. There's a lot of Canada, a lot of the wire wildfires. Does, does kind of your solution play into any of that and helping support maybe some of the response as well as other countries coming into Canada to help? fight the forest fires. What are your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so within our system, we have an incredible amount of data analytics. And it's really these data-driven decisions that can really enhance the effectiveness of organizations like Fire Department. And harnessing the power of that mass amount of data that we collect, and then taking industry professionals who specifically focus on data, then supercharging the situation with the user experience provides an end product for the user, fire department, community, municipality with actual solutions. Drawing out those correlations for what the causes are come through an examination of the data, but it has to be collected properly on the back end and then visualized properly on the front end for the user. I feel our company does a really good job of recreating that data visualization so that the decision maker doesn't have to be an in a data algorithm. They just have to have it, they, they just have to have the information in front of them. They know what the solutions are, but they can't just go off intuitions. Intuition can be costly, experience is an expensive teacher. So we can really help in that regard, specific to your example with the data collection. 
with the data collection and, and analytics portion, right? Do you find there's a large education piece to this as well? Like how much time do you find you're, you're educating chiefs or, or different firefighters on how to both utilize the system, but also how to build stories out of the data, right? And be able to act and be able to make decisions uh, downstream. What kind of education are you doing uh, on the back end to make sure they're picking it up and using it to what you intended to use it? Yeah, it's beautiful. So within the fire service, there's what's called NFPA standards, for example, and that's time requirements for vehicles on scene. So these are targets that the industry are already aware of and they're really well known. What we do, incredibly complicated on the back end to organize and collect the data to make it incredibly simple on the front end so that the fire chief making the decisions can just essentially look at the data board that's in front of them and say, that's what our performance is. This is what it was last year. Why do we have an improvement? What are we doing different? One of the things that we're working on as well, too, I think you find this really interesting, so I'm going to bring it up, is through some of the relationships we have with the other processes of the 911 system, what we want to build is a, a data board that has over 500 departments' data on it, but without the privacy information becoming a concern. So it would just be like pro-level Here's some performance target. How does department A, the department I work for, compare to the math data visualization so that you can do benchmarking? And then working, what we'd like to do is work with the province on a higher level or the Canadian government or individual provinces to then look at where improvements could be made. So say, for example, department X has a really high number of kitchen fires, which is something that we're able to pull in our system. Why? And then department B has very little. Why? Maybe one of them has a really good fire prevention program, and that's that correlation. Marry the two up together, and then you can decrease accidents of injury using the data. When So my understanding with at least EMS is that there's different services in different regions that like operate semi-independently obviously they're connected fairly well but semi-independently is that the same kind of like, how does the firefighter ecosystem work would that would your product essentially be a little bit of an ecosystem glue to bring people together to share data to collaborate to be able to make larger decisions at a larger scale 100 percent. yeah you, you said it just as good as i could have that is exactly right awesome it's really it's really through the data that you can make positive improvement and fiscally responsible improvements because you're not just going off of intuition. You're making data-driven, evidence-based decisions. I should say within our system too, we also initially we built this just because of some of the requirements to make the data visualizations work, but we have a process that can upload historical data because the visualizations are only as good as the information that you And when you first start using our system, you don't have that much information. However, we developed a process for developing historical information so that you're not starting at zero. You're taking that historical data, uploading it into our system, and then your visualizations provide that rich experience where you can start. So you can start making positive improvements right away. Yeah, strategically, it's incredibly smart. It really shortens that time to value, right? So you're not pulling up a, a platform where you have no data, that you have this lagging amount of time until you start seeing value, right? And, I mean, and that experience comes as a user looking at a system and saying, yeah, this isn't going to be good for another two or three years because this information has to be inputted before you can start looking for the correlation causes. So in terms of 
I guess your journey, looking at it from kind of start to finish, where would you say you are in the journey? Are you in market? Are you still doing a lot of pilots and beta testing? You know, what, what's the current status of the company? So we are in market and we are live with uh, departments right now. And I had more meetings this morning with departments that are looking to switch. I feel like our go-to-market strategy is really just sales and marketing and letting people know that we're up and running and uh, we're, we are a solution. And when we discuss the pain points in the meeting, it's really prevalent when we say, yeah, we recognize that this system wasn't doing that. That's why we built this feature in. Here it is. And it's not conceptual. It actually works, which is another big thing. We find that the American companies are really good at putting together a flashy presentation. And it's like, this system is the best and it does this and this. But then if you really dive deep into the contract, it's like coming soon coming soon, coming soon. And you were watching a video of what it might do. And then Canada get the beta product because we're always here as sort of an afterthought because it's such a smaller market. No, I respect going after Canada first, right? And building up your, your customer base, really making a value here. Yeah. That's something not a lot of startups do, right? They focus in on larger markets. And like you said, it tends to be a little bit more ignored in, in Canada. So it's nice to see a little bit of uh, startups staying here. We're starting to receive a little bit of feedback from firefighters actually using the platform. What is kind of some of that feedback so far? What are you doing with that, that feedback as, as it stands? Yeah. So in building out this product, my partner and I really, we assembled a really diverse board of advisors of not just people who occupy like fire chief position, but also the different um, levels. So like captains and even senior firefighters to say like, and have them user test. So we have well over a hundred years of experience behind us backing and testing the system when we were doing the UX design. And I mean, we even changed things from uh, the color scheme of our system originally because the demographic that we target felt it was too video, video game-ish, for example. So we even went to the level and degree of changing the color scheme, which are some of the great ideas that we got as part of the IP program and um, in the design processes that they speak about as we were coming up to the early stages of the program. So we really leaned on those experiences to do the UX well before we actually went to market or went to like an MVP stage. So a lot of the users, when we see it, it's like, oh, when can we have it? Which is an incredibly rewarding thing to hear because that's why we exist. Yeah. And to, to also show some appreciation, it you haven't looked into the team at Snappy Design, any of our listeners, Stephen Fike and, and Rob Farnham are, are building something special uh, with some of their early market validation work. So if you're a startup and don't know where to start, uh, feel free to reach out to them. They're fantastic. Great. Yep. Um, so in terms of where you are right now, I'd love to ask just personally, what are you most proud of from what you've built within the company? Like, is it a result? Is it like a product? Is it things you've done with Ahmed? What are you most proud of? I think we're most proud of the software ourselves. Like I said, our, the integration pieces that we have with other pieces of the puzzle, like, I, I feel like what we built was, it's an RMS system, but it really operates like the nucleus or brain of an organization because it provides such rich level of data and experiences for not just the end user, but also those strategic users as well. So I, I'm going to go with product right now. Oh, the business guy saying product. It's amazing. <laughs> it's really cool. I've, I've 
I actually would love to see it at some point. I know we've mentioned it a few times, but yep. we'll have to make some time to, to actually see it. When you look at the entire industry and how things are rapidly changing and, and a lot of different changes in, in software and then just the general tech industry right now, how do you see the industry evolving with firefighters or even just medical or emergency response services? I personally think you're going to see companies like myself come in as disruptors. I, I work with an incredibly amount, incredibly high number of really smart people. There's really smart people in EMS. And those situations are not unique where these, our services are being forced to use non-user built solutions that aren't tailored to their needs. And uh, there's a recognition that it's upsetting as our workforce becomes more and more educated, more technological, technologically savvy. You're going to see more and more uh, people like myself with similar backgrounds coming together with solutions that are designed to solve known problems. And I think it has the potential to take a lot of economical development away from some pretty big companies in the States and keep those economic dollars here in Canada. No, it's super cool. I mean, you see a lot of companies and it's just people, generally people are more aware of the FOMO, the fear of missing out on different tech or different opportunities or different software, just anything in general. It sounds like people are more eager to explore more opportunities, really do audits of their current tech stack, see where there's gaps and, and try and make changes uh, for what's best in the business. And I've been seeing this from a lot of the startups we're working with, but I'm starting to see it for obviously larger companies and businesses that our startups are selling into as well. It's uh, opening up a massive opportunity. The only silver lining of COVID, it's been nice that a lot of, because of some of the, the global boundaries have started to erode and people are being able to access different countries a little bit easier, just opening up a lot of doors. So I think one of the biggest things we have as well too, is like the, these user built solutions. It's something that initially it's not something that we really thought of, but where we're at in our journey right now, it really seems to resonate with um, a lot of people within the services, but also with more so without when they're like, wow, you're a user built solution. That's amazing. Those are the best product solution. It's just not as common. And I, I think you're going to see that become more and more common. Yeah. I think it's an interesting question to flip back to you then. Like, how do you design and build a user built solution, right? Like, how do you make sure that you're meeting some of those pain points? You're actually building towards a problem rather than just building a solution that nobody wants. I think you really have to spend a lot of time on the UX design of a system to make sure that you're not just spinning your wheels. And then once you think you have the perfect product, you need to hand it off to some people that don't have a confirmation bias and have them try to break it. I've been so fortunate in our journey to have access to such great resources with the, the experience to do product testing for us. Through that product testing, we had you know amazing ideas and solutions for forward network. Oh, I, I didn't think about that. Or, oh, I, I didn't realize that someone would use this application for that and then make a change, maybe make another change, and then the change affects change. And just like I said, like really hammering that design process down and specific to our industry, people don't like change cost money because it's training and it's time. And that's just not something that necessarily a responsible use of resources. So we spent an absorbent amount of time sort of trying to break the system so that our customers didn't have to go. No, it's awesome. And, and you alluded it, to it a little bit there, but also a few questions ago with your advisory pool. I find a lot of our startups or other businesses 
they don't know how to approach that, that problem. They believe they should have an advisory group, advisors or formal people that hold equity in the business, but as well as people that, that don't just to be able to do your user experience testing, ask for advice, ask for pretty much anything within the entire growth process. How did you go about strategically finding those advisors and, and what kind of advice do you give to startups also looking for that similar type of support? So I think approaching it from start from a perspective, I really enjoyed the Ray Dalio red light, green light, and sort of putting a collection of people together and having that constructive criticism and dialogue, because I think it really leads to positive improvement. We have a really unfair advantage in that we have access to an unlimited number of users across a plethora of departments. So not just where I work, other places as well too. And because of the chaos that's being created in our industry with these subpar systems, we had a really group of, we had a big group of people that were really happy to come forward and say, hey, I'm happy to give my perspective on this because I see the value in a solution that actually works. I think you're actually on the right path. People wanted to provide their perspective. And I, I feel as founders, we really opened the door to it as well too, because I, I want you to tell me what you think I'm not doing right. And I think that feeds to even some of the meetings with some of the mentors of mine. We've had some successes that we have. I don't need you to tell me that I'm great or that I'm doing this awesome. I want to hear what I can do better. And I want to hear what somebody doesn't like so I can make improvements. Again, that solution-driven approach. And that's something that we take into every aspect of what we do. That's great. Really focusing on, on the constructive stuff and being able to apply that to, to every facet of the business. You mentioned media within that last answer as well. So as a founder, are there any books, podcasts, movies, resources that, that keep you going? If you have time and I guess your 80 hour work, <laughs> it's a kickback and, and listen to some content. I definitely am a big audiobook guy. I really enjoy them. Yeah. I think maybe that goes back to the university days of uploading. U of W podcast on a, my MP3 player and going for a bike ride, <laughs> dating myself a little bit. But yeah, I'm, I'm reading, I think there's like your token, like grinding books, like your David Goggins. And I think they're enjoyable as well. And Cameron Haynes, one I'm reading right now. I really enjoy the Ray Dalio uh, Principles book. Just finished that not too long ago. But I would say time is not always plentiful in the <laughs> founder world. So typically those are listened to on longer drives. But yeah, I'm a big subscriber to The Economist and just keep up with trends, broader economical aspects, because that also impacts what goes on in terms of the funding world too. So I think just being aware of that so that when you're in meetings with some of the ministers, et cetera, I think it provides you with a level of credibility when you're in conversation. The more diverse of a that you can bring to those meetings, the better. Oh, absolutely. And it's amazing just how much content there are, there is these days. I'm somewhat into audiobooks right now or trying to jump back into it and then podcasts and it's on a constant wheel of new episodes being released constantly. So yeah. it's great to be able to find time. I find on the commute into work for things to just kick back and learn. So I guess the final, we're, we're coming up in the last few minutes here. So I feel like it wouldn't be a 2023 podcast without some gen AI or machine learning within. Do you have any kind of thoughts on either adding it to your system or is it adding efficiencies into your business? What's kind of your stance on all of it? I have nothing but a positive experience today. So we definitely use programs to optimize the performance of the code that we're writing. We've been doing that for quite a while and nothing but a great experience. And I do think 
thing that you can just do blindly. Like you do have to, there has to be that human oversight. And then from systems perspective, we do have a predictive algorithm built into ours. And we thought that was really important because it can really help with the planning piece of what the emergency services do. So being able to predict out what the next 30 days or 100 days look like are paramount for everything from staffing levels to building new stations as, as cities grow. And uh, impacted by everything too, in terms of what's going on in Waterloo with the vertical growth that we're having, drastically impacts service and response and public policy consequence. So anything that we can do in, in that area to positively improve using the powers of AI, I think that just helps separate us. And I think you're going to see more and more of it. And a company that isn't using it, especially in our space, is behind the times. And and it's just going to be it's going to be antiquated sooner than it normally would as a result of that. No, that's that's awesome. So I, I think we're just about at the end of time there. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for all your thoughts and, and experience in this, Patrick. It's been uh, obviously a pleasure working with you directly throughout the program, watching you grow and just seeing obviously the impact that you've been able to make for uh, the local community, but also extending all across uh, Canada. So keep on doing what you're doing. We're very excited to see where you take it from here. And yeah, thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me today. Again, we're always incredibly appreciative to take um, out for the AC as they've done so much for us and really accelerate our growth as a company. And we would be where we are at right now if it wasn't for working with individual stuff. So we're incredibly appreciative and uh, hope to continue doing that through growth and scale and economic development. So thank you. Amazing. Thank you. Waterloo Grit, an Accelerator Center podcast, is sponsored by the David Johnston Research and Technology Park and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by Bluemax. For more Waterloo Grit content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemax.io to join us on Discord.